My name is Tim Abrahams. Welcome to Superurbanism, the podcast that dances about architecture. In this series of interviews, we're going to introduce you to the work of some of the most creative architects and thinkers in the field. We'll then crawl around in their lovely minds to find out how they work and how they think. Now, the last two episodes, we've been looking at books, books produced by Machine Books, who also produce this luscious podcast. This week, we are removing our perfectly groomed heads from our well-thumbed tomes and visiting a real building. And a really good building it is too. Appleby Blue Arms House in Bermondsey. Look at my social media, Tim Abrahams or One Word on Twitter, to see the review. It's pinned to the top. We are actually going to get a tour of the building by one of the most thoughtful architects around, William Mann, of the practice who brought us the building, Witherford Watson Mann. They were Sterling Prize winners in 2013, and they were nominated for the Sterling Prize this year for their adaptation of the Courtauld Institute. Now, we all know what an arms house is, don't we? Because they're predominantly a British thing. The Dutch have them. There's a couple in the US. They're not widely known beyond the shores of the United Kingdom. So no worries if you don't. Arms houses were established in around the 10th century. They provide residence for poor, old and sick people. Interestingly, they have a very unique typology. They're a single story with wings to the side which protrude outwards. There's often a central door and there's a, a garden or a semi-courtyard in the front. Now what Witherford Watson Mann have done is update that typology for the 21st century to create a modern old people's home. William will explain exactly how. I'm William Mann from Witherford Watson Mann Architects and uh, we're in Bermondsey visiting the new arms house uh, which we designed for United St Saviour's Charity. Their foundation goes back to the dissolution of the monasteries and the redistribution of properties but also responsibilities to look after the welfare of the community. Obviously health and charity have been dealt with by the abbey, by the monasteries and so in a way it's this thing that's sort of on the one hand born out of the end of that kind of particular system but in a way then also now has a kind of particular increased relevance as the welfare state is changing. It's 60 apartments for older people on the model of an arms house. I suppose the sense of actually accommodating older people in the city rather than pushing them out to the edges is also a key part of the mission so without making too many direct leaps and links it is a sense of life in all its rich complexity rather than the simplified clean version. It's the kind of scale where you can talk to the different bits of the city and say look it's all right it doesn't it's not a natural condition it's not as planned orderly city like some others we could mention but it's okay it works it actually is richer for this diversity. This is what something that say what Robert Ad, you know Robert Adams' contribution to architecture is arguably making a, a palace out of a terrace. It's this idea that, that the collective can somehow aspire to the nobility or presence or greater kind of substance and dignity than the individual. In uh, Young and Wilmot's family and kinship in East London, where they say that the housing in this area in Bethnal Green goes by two names with the local residents: it's cottages. It's basically the sort of terrace houses and barracks, which is the tenements. And I suppose is it the sense that there's a way of, I don't know, working with the tenement, working with the taller, 
more collective dwelling that is not as disciplinary as the barrack. A very simple diagram, it's a donut with a gallery on the inside. So all the apartments have an outside face, a window to the main street, the side streets, or the garden at the, to the south. And they all have a kind of front door onto glazed galleries. There's two things, I suppose, that um, vary that. One is that it's five storeys to the street and two storeys to, um, to the rear, to the, to the neighbouring gardens. And the second is that then these ground two floors of the street front are scooped out and are there as these collective communal public rooms. The cafe is a kitchen, but it's actually a cookery school. I think there's eight cooking stations. There's a two-storey horseshoe with the courtyard facing the street, and then there's a three-storey horseshoe that faces back in towards the gardens, overlaid. So I'm gesturing here with my hands in C's, overlapping. And This is the Bermondsey building, and looking at what we had in our hands on our drawing tables, what struck us was that where we were headed, which I guess we sharpened, was very much in tune with a kind of an echo of the old coaching ends of the Borough High Street. So it's got a with this courtyard at the centre, which is 40 metres um, uh, east-west, and then eight metres at its narrowest. And those galleried inns are kind of theatrical, it's this sort of early deck access with this sort of strong communal quality. So I suppose it is that sort of sense of, and there's a kind of quite a lot of liberties with different types there, but they are somehow compatible and overlaid and units in. It's mathematical permutations and deal with daylight and uh, urban presence. But on the other hand, then, you've got these clues. I suppose that's, so in that, I suppose in our minds, the historical imagination, the spatial imagination and the social imagination are not separate things, they're all facets of the same thing. The, the earthy brick um, gives it sort of down to earth, it's surrounded by London stocks as a sort of red machine cut brick kind of building opposite, but mostly it's sort of London. This um, Danish brick which is I suppose it's got some of the tones of a, a weathered and um, polluted London stock. As soon as you clean it, it goes back, sort of, not quite, clean, you know, sandy yellow and loses that sense of um, patina and time. And that was something that both we and United St. Saviour's were keen on, was this sense of having something that had a real kind of uh, earthiness. And then, yeah, um, and I suppose that gives it this hard outer shell, but then there's this sort of softer, lighter, more open inner centre of the courtyard, the courtyard garden, with the galleries around and the um, oak frame windows. I've stayed in a traditional Ryokan Japanese inn in the heart of Tokyo, and it's got this sort of tiny pocket, with one of these little world in a microcosm gardens, with a pine tree growing up through it, and then these sort of wooden screens, head galleries, and then even these sort of uh, metal, these strong metal sills that obviously a lot of sunshine, a lot of rain hitting it all. And I thought, yeah, feels strangely familiar. This is when it, 
this was still a, a project because somehow it was validating. It's got, got a bit of urgency about it and then a, a fair amount of it. And then on the other hand, it's this is something that also speaks to other places and other traditions. Because I guess your old coaching inn wouldn't have had a landscape courtyard with a water feature. Yeah, we could go up onto the... from the um, public to the private. CC then here. Oh, wow. So there's, I think I suppose, well, um, three main apartment types. Um, the, they're all sort of you know, dual aspect in the sense of having a window to the gallery. Um, and then here is broad galleries with them. Um, seating in front of people's front doors. So yeah, it feels like an arms house. You can sort of see here and there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Morning. So that, that this this housing type number nine, what's that? What is that? Uh, they're I think they're all two um, they're one bedroom but number two beds. Um, I think more in the corners. You have hallway in the middle to the gallery, kitchen on one side, bathroom to the other, living room and bedroom. You're on a bend in the road and the more natural thing might be that you follow that and we did a version like that, cranking it, following that uh, curve of the road and instead rather than making it convex, following the road, it's concave which I suppose just sort of draws this sense of a kind of counterpoint or a, um, you know, yeah. opening inward, yeah. which is, you know, for what it's worth, it's what Borromini did at the Oratorio Filippini, you know, it's a sense of, you know, this uh, narrow street and then this sort of counter movement, but, you know, like, it's all, it's all grist of the mill, isn't it, you know? Borromini <laughs> in Bermondsey, yeah. why not? I mean, if it doesn't work, yeah. for me it can go for a hike. <laughs> and if it does, then um, yeah. we'll, we'll borrow it. <laughs> and he does, he's not due any royalties. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's like this whole world of... Uh, it's interesting because I think of almost this historical imagination and sort of types and, in particular, I suppose types and optopoint images and methods of construction, but well, certainly yeah, trades. Seems to me that the idea, this search for innovation and newness, is just unrealistic and implausible and impoverished compared to renewing, taking these tradition maybe as a sort of uh, overloaded and uh, over-conservative word, but taking these sort of living bodies of work and types and tropes and turns of phrase and that's what writers do all the time. Actors don't say, oh god, do I really have to play Hamlet? I want to play a contemporary figure or... And even then, obviously, in music, Miles Davis didn't say, oh, do I have to play Round Midnight? In early 
kind of jazz musicians when they went around the States touring and they'd be at Graham Bosch and they'd travel on their own and they'd have to play with local musicians. So they'd play standards. So in a way, almost like standards is almost like this sort of thing for recognition. And of course, then they could improvise around those standards. And I see that being much being a kind of interesting kind of mode of creativity that's, I suppose, that really puts the architects and the architects' improvisational, compositional um, skills in something rooted in a social context that everyone can understand rather than that's a, that you have to have read Derrida to get. Obviously then the, par- the irony of, of, of that is that now in music people are going, oh, someone's used that sequence of notes before. I wrote a song that sounded a bit like that, in a totally different key, in a totally different rhythm, a totally different genre, you know. I'd like my share of the royalties of, please, Mr Ed Sheeran, or whoever. Copyright language, can't copyright music, <laughs> shouldn't be able to copyright, certainly just sequences of notes, and it's the same with buildings. The thing that makes them resonant is the thing that makes them collective, which is the, the, the repeated or the hopefully non-copyrightable part. Because if everything's one-off, everything's new, then you're just in a sort of exceedingly disorienting world, aren't you? In a way, it's a few simple moves. Not that many. It's a long donut gallery, then you knead it to the side, and then you have this superimposition, and that's sort of about it. William speaks very knowledgeably about his own work. But he also speaks about other architecture in a very knowledgeable way. And it makes you realise something. To him and his colleagues, Stephen Witherford and Christopher Watson, architectural history isn't something remote, something to be read. It's a living, breathing set of practices to be used, to be picked from, to be stolen. We paused on the top floor of the Appleby Blue Almshouse and looked out across the roofscape of South London. Actually, sorry, make me realise... I haven't mentioned. In case you don't know, Bermondsey is in South London. Sorry. Oh, that's Charles Gilbert Scott at Sir Denmark Hill. Oh, really? The Salvation Army, which oh. is absolutely cracking building. Because you know he did this, the same building over and over and over, in which is basically what a brick fortress with a tall, squarish tower. That's the Salvation Army. Then it's like the University Library in Cambridge. Then it's the what does it take? The power station. And you know what? It works pretty much every time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Don't knock it, because... Yeah. <laughs> Church in Gravesend, uh, handsome. Almost everywhere we build, there's this sort of... It's irregular. Um, but somehow... And I suppose there's a, there was this enthusiastic embrace of classicism and regularity and possibly, you might say, Palladianism at one point and modernism at another point. And at the same time, that the irregular's never gone away and it's, and it's just so deep-rooted in the structure of our cities, towns, villages that it's useful to be able to deal with it. And if something's to hand and it helps you do it, then you do it. Given the complexity of human life, it's good to look for the magpie stuff wherever you can find it and obviously you need to find some sort of rigour or economy of means to things because otherwise it just they don't happen and you, know, you go into various clients offices and they've got this pile of reports and uh, of behind every successful building or sorry every building that's been built which in one is one basic definition of success for a project uh, 
uh, probably half a dozen studies of things that possibly were terribly compelling, interesting, whatever, but just didn't have the economy means to make them happen. What's been interesting for us as an office, where, what, ten years ago we were doing projects about one, two million pounds worth in value, and you can control a lot more and you define more at the same time, it comes also with its a whole load of difficulties. But And then here, with a, we've, this is one of the kind of generation of four projects that we won in 2014. The Business Centre in Hoxton, the um, Court Old Institute of the House, and then Clare College in Cambridge, and then the Arms House, where they're all in the kind of what, 12 to um, 25 million pound bracket. And, and there's this beautiful and fascinating challenge in the fact that they're all different, different uses, different, very different sites, has been uh, fascinating. But somehow, it is that a challenge to raise your game to get the right fit a small building scaled up with just an overwhelming amount of incident it was like every what the interesting thing is how you can pack an awful lot in the zone at the Sony museum obviously it's, it's his folly and he packs in far too much than you should be able to get away with and but we indulge him. Yes. Um, his sons didn't, um, of course, <laughs> publishing this scurrilous criticism of the illiteracy of Fletcher. But then at a bigger scale, there was this invention, but it was more sober, tighter, greater economy means, probably the better for it. What do you mean by economy of means? It's like how little you can do that still achieves what's needed and so it's certainly something that we look for sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously on projects that you know that and I suppose up to a point it's interesting even on this project it's not a small building in a conservation area the local authority had all sorts of questions and so there's I suppose in response to those questions we added detail we added the inflections, the stepping of the attic and all these things which just somehow soften the presence and fit it to the area. All of that, in a way, at one level it costs money. You can't then be going up and up to a point that is your flurry. So it's a sense of how the individual relates to the collective. You know, that you actually create apartments where they each have a kind of individuality rather than just a sense of the sausage machine. or something that has a sense of wholeness but could be added to because nothing's ever finished on the one hand it's about the individual collective on the other hand it's how the thing sits within the city and then you've got to find a way to make it affordable maintainable that you don't have 16 different materials which was the thing of housing in the 80s and 90s was oh slabs so they're uh, modernist slabs so therefore we'll do a bit in render a bit in wood bit. so I suppose what we're trying for with economy of means is the sense of that things have a vocabulary that they have a language that they have a and which is part which is partly about a good poem doesn't just change rhythm it's an essay i wrote and it was published in casabella earlier this year which is a reflection about you might say it's the return of history to the practice of architecture at the same time it's a sense that it's never gone away because this, this idea that buildings take a long time to gestate and conceive, a uh, long time to build, and actually they often end up getting interrupted. For example, the building that we've just seen, uh, the Berman 
Lindsay um, houses. It be began nine years ago, and did you say it was paused for three years? Yeah, exactly. You're navigating political cycles, you're navigating economic cycles, and then also just change of personalities. People come and go, and how that shapes things. So I suppose it's this sense that, and maybe that's the interesting kind of quality of it is that making buildings is very contingent hedged with tons of contingencies and therefore and in a way you just need the right or a certain kind of fortunate contingency to get something started and even and until it's finished or until it's finished for now it's always at risk of being interrupted or incomplete or and even then when it's finished and of course we then take our nice photographs and walk away and Actually, then that's when its life starts. And in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, I don't know, it gets adapted. And so at the same time, in that first 30 years, they still got that sort of charge in years. And every, people are just too exhausted to do anything with them. What interests me, certainly, is how you think about buildings, both with this sort of stop, start, sticky time of their conception, and that somehow you're bringing to them the hopes and dreams and collective delusions that you and your society have built up over preceding decades, I don't know, some idea of the European city or density being good or mid-rise density being a, a positive. At the same time, then, it's all these kind of contingencies of, yeah, the political cycles, even to the point of certainly the business centre, what we visited, the German brickworks, so I think the week after the Brexit referendum, they said, oh, it's Bryce, you've come, and, but, and there's this building that's with German bricks... I don't know, Austrian wood, Danish windows, a variety of Eastern European labour, all completed just around the time of the the, the the departure. I suppose this building that somehow, it's European in, liter in its materiality, in its labour, partly in its idea, and yet <laughs> sort of, yeah. it's kind of com completely come at the wrong moment and I suppose there's things like one of the things that one of the illustrations they used was the Young Vic Theatre where they were building the National Theatre with three stages with Lasden, Olivier at the head and then we've got three stages and we've got running a company out of the Old Vic one stage and they realised they have to grow the audience and they also and diversify the audience you have to grow the company because you need actors who can start on the smaller stage and learn their trade and they say in order to build the theater we have to build another theater a temporary theater was it frank dunlop's assistant works then with bill howell of howell collect parts and amos and they knock up this brutalist version of a shakespearean theater on a bomb site in six months for is it sixty thousand pounds and then it's such a beautiful Dunlop is looking at the plans of the Fortune Theatre, the contract for the Fortune Theatre, because that sort of tells you what its dimensions and things are. And I don't know, what is it? Bill Howell's looking at, at pylons and things like this. So you've got this sort of funny spidery exoskeleton to it. And then it makes this theatre that's so compelling. Yeah. And what is it? You have The Who played there because they liked its energy. You had Andrew Lloyd Webber's, what's it called? Uh, Joe, Joe Sullivan's Technical Dream Coat. When that was fresh and new, and in the 70s you had... They played this sort of cabaret style of Molière, so it's just something energetic and powerful. And then it shaped this thing, and then... So I suppose the idea is the... It's what Winston Churchill said, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. The impulse there shaped this thing, and then actually it turns out to be that good that... So let's hold on to it, let's... 
adapt and extend and it's, I suppose it was that then almost like that 25 year lifespan it had and or was it, did it, was it 35 and then they reset it and rebuild the auditorium basically on the same lines so I suppose what interests me very um, architects operate in this very contingent field where things are stop start you can never kind of quite tell what's going to go what's not and how do you make something that endures but has got the lightness of touch that it's also open to change I suppose it's my inclination, temperament, philosophy, I'm a modernist of some kind. But I find Witherford Watson Mann's architecture compelling their historical contextualism. Primarily, I suppose, because modernism is a key part of their historical context. But I also find William's exploration of their philosophy compelling. I would say, though, architectural history is a dangerous place. It's where excuses can be found bad ideas can be riffed on. It is only worth plundering if we understand it as an expression of human history, human needs, which we can match and adapt to our own. And that's what Witherford Watson Man do for me. Sorry about the windiness throughout, I forgot to add the little fluffy hat you need to put on the recorder, even if there's a slight breeze. So it sounds at times as if the almshouse rises 50,000 feet above the earth. It doesn't, it's a human scale, a beautiful building. If you'd like to know more about it, go to Twitter, find me, Tim Abrahams, or one word, and read the article in the architectural record that I wrote. Check out the lovely pictures there. Thanks, by the way, to my friend Danny Vincent for recording this lovely version of Craftworks of a Model on his accordion. Great stuff. Thank you. So, yeah, please forward this podcast to people who you think might like it. Please subscribe. Let us know what you think on Twitter at machine underscore books. Other episodes available at www.machinebooks.co.uk slash portfolio slash superurbanism. Take it easy.